0: wherever you get your podcasts.
1: San Francisco Bay, November 20th, 1969. It's dark and cold, and they are in the water, huddled together in a small trawler. For what must have seemed like a good idea at the time, but now the actuality of it was hitting our travelers. that at any moment their tiny vessel could be rammed by a giant tanker in the bay that wouldn't even see them, as they were keeping all lights off so not to be detected by a Coast Guard vessel. In obvious violation of maritime navigation etiquette. Desperately, as they passed under the Golden Gate Bridge and saw the skyline of the city Coit Tower in the distance, they could not be tourists in this moment so they had to keep their eye out for anyone watching them. Salty, cold, forceful, the Pacific wind was not forgiving. And these travelers were not sailors, used to this kind of water. They were students, activists, a bartender, a Vietnam vet, a professor. A few were from Southern California and wore clothes for the beach. If it was an invading force, it was a strange one. Yet they and their vessel and several other dinghies and boats that followed did not stray from their mission. They were seeking to take land from the United States. mile and a half from San Francisco, the trawler docks at its destination, the former prison of Alcatraz. And they scale over a fence, escaping civilian life for a moment to get into a prison, roaming through cold and empty cell blocks that once held names like Al Capone or the Birdman, but long since had been abandoned. They proceeded to the former warden's house, where everyone was to meet. Thankfully there, there was a fire. And though most had forgotten to bring the types of supplies they were supposed to. They found chairs and other furniture to burn for warmth and for light. Other than a few flashlights and cigarettes, this fire was the only way to see. There were shouts. There were hollers. There were drums. as the several boats delivered 78 people. The Indians had taken over Alcatraz. Yet it was not as solemn as it could have been. There was, at least not immediately, the battle paint or feathers that warriors don. These young activists were urban. The result, really, of Truman-era policies that relocated they or their parents, or both, off reservations with bus tickets and faulty promises of employment and health care. They experienced poverty, alcoholism, poor educational opportunities, and those that were students organized between San Francisco State, UC Berkeley, UC Santa Cruz, and a few other colleges, and they seized on a plan. There was a piece of land that the federal government was not using. And former treaties had said that if there was any land available, the federal government would give that to the Indian people. There was even a quick little protest where a group of people landed on the island, but quickly returned. It was largely forgotten. But not by them. Alcatraz was closed by the federal government in 1962 due to cost. It was not clear what was going to happen with it. There were some talks of everything from a museum, a park, a sports stadium, development. Seven years after its closing, this group had an intention to take over Alcatraz and declare it the property of all Native Americans. Yet this group, mostly students, did act like students. Smoking marijuana, drinking beer, and there would be a few hiccups. Coast guard, boat immediately tried to land. One of the students, a Vietnam vet, was quick to react and got a group to block the landing. Then a helicopter tried to land on the prison yard. Alcatraz is 17 acres. That's pretty big. And we're only talking about 78 students who are, quote, occupying it. It's a lot of territory to cover. So they had to run over to the yard and prevent the helicopter from landing. No, said this Native American Vietnam vet. We're not ready for it. That was blocked as well. Temporarily, the Coast Guard decided to then blockade the island, but not attempt a landing. It was, as darkness turned to light, a moment of relief. We were free, said Luana one of the activists who had been a secretary at Berkeley. There's no law here, only the laws we make for ourselves. A powwow commenced. Children played, and most importantly, reporters started covering the occupation. Okay, on the podcast website www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, dot dot com, I'm going to have a link to some interesting video coverage of the Alcatraz occupation that's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com also at myhist at myhist i'm on twitter so follow me premium podcast www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics premium.com for as little as two dollars per month you can get a premium podcast with extra bonus episodes and archived episodes Unlike the Coast Guard, of course, the students allowed reporters on. And reporters were at Fisherman's Wharf across the bay, watching as various boats attempted to go back and forth. Coverage was constant. Indians from all over the area eventually would join for a huge Thanksgiving celebration, all covered on TV. And they started to establish some things. Their name, they said, were the Indians of all tribes. They represented all the tribes in America. And their spokesperson was a Mohawk named Richard Oakes, a student and also a bartender. He wore a huge button that said, we won't move. Everybody can see it. On one end of the country, you
0: have the Statue of Liberty and this is it's a, it's the opposite. We have a true reality
1: of Liberty. These are the young people, the future leaders of the tribes, Oakes said. We might, he told a reporter, just wake up the conscience of America. Do you think you have the legal right to claim the island? And why? Well, you're talking about two different
0: societies now. In my society, or in the Indian society, yes, we do. Can you uh, describe Um, for me again what it is you hope to build out here on Alcatraz? Build a nation? We hope to build an
1: example, uh, a a mecca, a a school where other Indians can come to. Concert was held, the folk singer Malvina Reynolds played, and an Indian singer, Buffy St. Marie. At one point, a boat comes ashore, and one of the student leaders, activists around him in tow, stands up on the boat in full headdress and wore paint, like a kind of Native American George Washington. And they read a proclamation. We, the Native Americans, reclaim the land known as Alcatraz Island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. We wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with the Caucasian inhabitants of this land and thereby offer the following treaty. We will purchase, said Alcatraz Island, for $24 in glass beads and red cloth, a precedent set by the white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago. We will give to the inhabitants of this island a portion of the land for their own to be held in trust by the American Indian government and by the Bureau of Caucasian Affairs to hold in perpetuity for as long as the sun shall rise and the rivers go down to the sea. We will further guide the inhabitants of the proper way of living. We will offer them our religion, our education, our life ways in order to help them achieve our level of civilization and thus raise them and all of their white brothers up from the savage and unhappy state. We feel that this so-called Alcatraz Island is more suitable for an Indian reservation, as determined by the white man's own standards. By this, we mean that this place resembles most Indian reservations in that it is isolated from modern facilities, without adequate means of transportation, it has no fresh running water, it has inadequate sanitation. There are no oil or mineral rights. There's no industry, and so unemployment is great. There are no health care facilities. The soil is rocky and nonproductive. There are no educational facilities. The population has always exceeded the land base. The population has always been held as prisoners and kept dependent on others. Further, it would be fitting and symbolic that ships from all over the world entering the Golden Gate would first see Indian land and thus be reminded of the true history of this nation. There could be little doubt what Oakes and the other student activists were looking for. A tremendous public relations event. A reversal of the way the story of Native American peoples had been told in history. Law enforcement watched nervously. The island of Alcatraz was run by the government services agency, the GSA. And at first, the director took a harsh stance. They gave the Indians of all tribes literally one day. They wanted them out by Friday at noon. And then U.S. Marshals would be sent in. But when press reports unfavorable to what the marshals were doing with how much force they were planning to use, the ammunition that they were stockpiling to take back the island, when that started to surface, the GSA got nervous. Thankfully for them, the problem was transferred to the White House. So within 24 hours, this group of student activists who had taken over Alcatraz became an action item for the President of the United States. Now, in terms of the Nixon administration, if you were looking for a favorable or peaceful resolution, it probably landed at the right person's desk. Nixon handed it over to Leonard Garment, who was a law firm friend of Nixon prior to his second presidential run. And probably one of the more liberal guys in the Nixon administration, he ordered evacuation talk halted ordered negotiations, and also developed a White House commission to look at the grievances of Native American people. At the same time, another revolution was happening. This one with words on a typewriter. Custer died for your sins, wrote Professor Vine Deloria Jr., a member of the Sioux Tribe. This was the title of his 1969 book, designed to shock the sensibilities of a nation that knew Native Americans only from TV, only from movies. He skewered everyone. The Congress, presidents that had set Indian policy, bureaucrats that implemented it, the missionaries that tried to be good, liberals, Democrats, cooperating tribal leaders. He sought to turn traditional notions on their head. For instance, you know you see Indians as weak, confined to reservations. But once, you Americans were weak. The U.S. was weak and helpless, the settlers shivering, dying. It needed the good graces of Indians to shepherd them through the drought and blizzard, to feed them. When you know this, you'll know why every tribe in the U.S. burns with resentment. So said his book. Custer Died for Your Sins, a shocking bestseller in this year. Even anthropologists and sociologists, seemingly innocent, studying tribes did not escape Delorious ire. They have acted as if we couldn't do anything that they didn't understand or approve of. Those days are gone. He tacked what he called the Bering Strait Fiction that sought to undermine claims that Indians were here first by saying they walked across the Bering Land Bridge. He tacked the Discovery Doctrine, the original court decision that said European settlers discovered the lands and therefore they owned them. By that logic, he said, the students at Alcatraz have discovered the land empty and have as much right to it as anyone else. Other common assertions were attacked. The idea that nothing can be done with the tribes is his choice of of words for describing the people, tribe. It's not true that nothing can be done. Even if one acknowledges the power of the state, there are many options available outside of outright theft of our lands. Look at Canada. There are reservations in every province. There's coordination with local government, with acknowledged rights of those nations. He used history and identified in history the change of status in Native American peoples from tribes or nations as subjects of treaty negotiations to wards of the state after the assimilation policies of the 1890s. Nor is it true, Vondaloria said, that We must just wave our hands. Nothing can be done. It's too late. There are extant claims. You could restore hunting and fishing rights of the tribal land. You could restore land held by the government bordering tribal properties. You could restore the status of treaty relations and begin anew. These ideas are not as radical now as they were in 1969. But as Deloria moved through a variety of colleges, Western Washington University, UCLA, Colorado College, and eventually the University of Colorado, he frustrated professors who wanted the older version of history told. And he fired off more books with titles that shocked God is Read and We Talk, You Listen. New tribes, new turf. He challenged the history of assimilation, the elimination of native religions. It was, he said, a clear violation of the First Amendment. But no one did anything about that. He threw American social values, at them. Americans, he said, did not behave in a Christian way to the tribes. Where the cross goes, he says, there's never life abundant. On San Francisco Bay, as negotiations continued with the federal government, a new nation had been established for a few months. Families had moved and they mixed oddly with partying college students and unemployed Native Americans. They had established a tribal council to run the new Alcatraz with members elected for 90-day terms. And for the time, their territorial integrity was protected. They had control over the island. And the public relations game was being won. The San Francisco mayor goes over to Europe, and all anyone wants to talk about are the Indians in Alcatraz. It's not just the media. Movie stars, folk singers, and lots of random visitors, some of them Native Americans from all over the country, some of them... Hippies who are coming in their cross country and their VW buses to see this spectacle. Anthony Quinn, Jane Fonda, Merv Griffin all visit Alcatraz Island. Credence Clearwater Revival, the band, gives them a boat so that they can transport supplies back and forth. It's called the Clearwater. They almost didn't need it. They had established fundraising operation. There were people sending supplies. There were friendly traffic helicopters from the various TV stations dropping things off. At one point, all anyone living on that island, by the time 69 gets into 1970, there were piles of piles of supplies and food. Even though the weather was getting cold, they had plenty of blankets. They set up their own committees. There was a safety committee called the Bureau of Caucasian Affairs to patrol the island. Their hope was that Alcatraz would be turned into, at minimum, an Indian community, but also possibly a training center, vocational training center. So many people from the Truman era policies, something not widely known, that he had appointed a commissioner of Bureau of Indian Affairs that wanted to break up the reservations by encouraging people to get into the cities. It was successful in a degree that many young people came to cities, and this is Denver, Seattle, Phoenix, Los Angeles, principally Western cities. They were promised vocational education, but many didn't get it and just went to work doing menial labor. So the hope was that this would be transformed into a cultural center and and a vocational training center and other things that could be useful to Native Americans. But there was a dark side, too. Richard Oakes, one of the key student leaders, was starting to be resented by the others that were living on the island a few months into the occupation in 1970. He's going an awful lot across the Bay to San Francisco, and sometimes he's on the mainland for days, leaving the inhabitants there alone. He's being besieged by the news media. He's kind of become a a media sensation. Uh, for this news story, he's a very good looking person. He's a very good spokesperson. He has a good way of kind of turning the phrases. But he hadn't been involved really in the Indian community that much prior. He had moved to San Francisco recently and he was a, a bartender at a bar where many of the, the Native Americans in San Francisco would go to drink and he heard their stories. And it kind of gave him the ability to have these talking points from things that he heard from people he was relatively young and not somebody that had a big experience in these issues. So he was resented for that reason, for the amount of attention he was getting. There was also some questions about where all of the money that was being fundraised was going. He had it directed to an account that he controlled, and many resented that. The security committee, the Bureau of Caucasian Affairs, was starting to be seen as a gang of thugs. And especially as some of the original students who had taken time off from their classes went back to college. Some of the people who replaced them were unemployed Native Americans who had been hanging out in the Mission District or elsewhere and came to party and drink and maybe not had the same intentions of the original movement. Initially, there was an attempt by the Tribal Council to ban alcohol and drugs, but they never could stop it. Government negotiators came from the GSA, from the White House, but couldn't get anywhere. The Indians of all tribes would insist on nothing else but a deed to the island. And the White House wasn't going to support that. A little bit of the negative side starts appearing in newspapers and TV media about what's going on in the island, but it was a tragedy that really sparked the end of this Alcatraz movement. Richard Oaks' own daughter was running down a set of stairs that didn't have the proper railing and fell. And unfortunately, she was killed. This shook the island. Not only was there infighting because there was a group that thought that somebody pushed her to get back at Richard Oaks, who some people didn't like. There was some talk that there, among the people living on the island now. After several months, there were some really crazy people, and it wasn't clear. Most people dismissed that kind of talk. Others blamed Oakes because he was too busy hanging out with celebrities and on the mainland and not coming to the island enough and supervising his children as he should. So there was all this talk, but what it did do is paralyze Richard Oakes and his wife as spokespeople for the island and for this new community. He leaves. After this warring faction struggled for control, while food supplies became scarce, some of the donations that had been Overwhelming in the beginning, now, as you're getting into the fifth and sixth month of the occupation is starting to die out. and even nationally, while admiring the movement, there starts to be some criticism over whether this is the best group of people to represent the Native American cause in 1970. Even Von Deloria is critical, saying that the Indians of all tribes do not speak for the tribes. No one can speak for the tribes, but they themselves. A hundred people on an island cannot. A fire breaks out, and before it's put out, it damages some of the historic buildings of Alcatraz. The student activists occupy Alcatraz for over a year. It does dwindle. By 1971, there's about six people left on the island. U.S. Marshals saying that they have to repair the lighthouse on the island, land in, take the remaining people out, and take back the island. Still, when in 1973, the island was turned into a park, they left one thing there. The graffiti that the Native American activists had put on the wall was left. And if you go to Alcatraz, you can see it. It is now a part of history and part of the park.
2: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Alcatraz had mixed results. It was good and bad, and, and by some people it was seen as a kind of a joke. On the other hand, the struggle meant something. It forced tribal issues to spotlight. As an empty spot, it showed what an Indian could be, not in some Western movie, but in modern times, if land were granted and if tribes were left alone. There were some slight results on the federal scene, too, Nixon announces that there should be a renewed interest in Native American issues. Congress passes a few favorable laws. Uh, One piece of law passed in the 1970s involves giving tribes new rights over how children will be educated. Another protects their religious rights. And this spawns off a whole bunch of other Native American protests. There are now Native Americans that protest at Plymouth Rock. A group takes over the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Briefly, puts a teepee on the lawn. Many other acts of protest and symbolism. These are all peacefully resolved. But at Wounded Knee, South Dakota, the site of a bloody U.S. massacre of Indians, women, and children, that is, well-remembered in the tribes, there was a more bitter struggle. Oddly, It was a struggle not necessarily against the white man, at least not immediately, but against an Indian leadership. Richard, or Dickie Wilson, was a Lakota Indian who had official control of the Pine Ridge Reservation, okay? Federal law dictating who controlled reservations at this time was set up during Franklin Roosevelt's term 1934 Indian Reorganization Act and that act there's criticism of it but as far as pieces of federal legislation go there's a little more support for it than some of the other acts of the federal government in the in the Native American community but it did set up how tribes would elect leaders But there was still a group of traditionalists who didn't recognize the IRA or anything like that. And so some of the people that were elected were elected with a really small amount of the vote because much of the members of the tribe were not voting. And so it was at the Pine Ridge Reservation. For many, Richard Wilson became a tyrant, controlling the area with an armed guard. He did not like the traditional Indians in their views. He did not like them not assimilating. He did not like them not cooperating with the state and federal authorities. Didn't like a lot of the tribal religion. Certainly didn't like that there was a group of people that thought they had a different control structure from the tribe and not from the IRA-identified tribal leader himself. And he certainly didn't like the National Student Movement that had taken over Alcatraz and that was now appearing in the scene in North and South Dakota as part of the American Indian Movement, or AIM. Well, the traditional Oglala Sioux didn't like him back, and they certainly didn't like most of the governments recognized by the BIA. Dick Wilson was in league with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and not only did The traditional tribal members kind of chafe at this control that Wilson was asserting. But also the BIA was allowed into the reservation too much for them to take. There were still police and other government units operating on tribal territory. This kind of resentment was burning all over the nation at various reservations, but it was particularly strong at Pine Ridge Reservation. Wilson was a particularly bad case. He doled out all of the jobs that were available, all the money collected by the reservation, to his friends and family. Not only that, but he terrorized his opponents. Despite this, bravely, a civil rights council was set up, and they were able to force Wilson's impeachment. But instead of resigning, he found technicalities to ignore the decision and was protected by the BIA. He then set up shop in a bunker within the BIA building on the reservation, extra fortified, and sent out his security forces to do his bidding. Well, at the same time, AIM, the American Indian Movement, a group of student activists initially started in St. Paul, Minnesota, but active all around the country, had been working in the area. Having done things in Washington, D.C. and Plymouth Rock, now it was time to return to the source of the problem, to the actual reservations and their borders where there were issues. And one of the things that was going on, reservation had banned alcohol, so alcoholism is is, is an alarming problem then and now in reservations. And members of the tribe would go across to border towns and go to the bars there. When incidents occurred, say, bar fight or just groups of settlers, groups of people from the towns would beat up Indians, there's a case where a member of the tribe was, was beaten to death and the murder was not prosecuted. So AIM goes to Custer, South Dakota, appropriate name, and insists that they get heard during in, in the court. When they're shoved, they shove back. When the police pull out nightsticks, these are not small <laughs> little people. <laughs> Some of the leaders of this movement are 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 very physical. They take them from the police. They burn two police cars, damage the courtroom, and burn down a chamber of commerce building. Well, members of the Oglala Sioux Civil Rights Organization, or Oscro, notice this. And they invite Aim to come to Pine Ridge Reservation and help them with this problem. After deliberation, Osgro and AIM, so both the traditional tribal leaders and people living on the reservation and these kind of new urban student activists decide that the best thing to do is to occupy a border town. And there's a border town, Wounded Knee. It has the name, the same name as the massacre. It's going to have tremendous symbolic importance. It's going to get good amount of media attention. And led by Russell Means, Dennis Banks of AIM, they take over this small town. They hold a general store, a church, a few homes. They declare Wounded Knee an independent nation, and they demand to meet the Secretary of State. This is 1973, four years after Alcatraz. A small delegation even goes to the UN, though they were not able to receive recognition there. The federal government, it's still the Nixon administration, uh, now in his second term, establish roadblocks, which after a few days are kind of loosely enforced and supporters start pouring into Wounded Knee, just as had happened in Alcatraz. Unlike Alcatraz, though, this is not being handled by the White House directly. Nixon's in a weakened position in 1973. This is referred to the Department of Justice because there are A larger set of crimes here since private property had been taken. The DOJ first attempts to negotiate. There's no movement. And firefights break out. So federal marshals, FBI, armored vehicles, helicopters are all surrounding the town. And unlike in Alcatraz, they're not simply letting be. Anyone moving out in the open has a chance of getting shot. AIM and the Native American activists are also armed, and they're firing back. Wounded Knee goes on for three months. There's a lot of media attention. Uh, just like in Alcatraz, there are people who are renting planes to help try to supply them. There's a fellow who comes all the way from North Carolina with his pregnant wife. He's a Native American and finally sees an opportunity to make a stand. He gets through the barricades, enters the church where a lot of the members are, are held up, and sadly, Less than a few hours after, he comes all the way from the North Carolina, he's shot in the head. A U.S. Marshal is also paralyzed during the firefight. This is getting national attention, and one of the big moments is Marlon Brando is set to receive an Academy Award, and instead, he doesn't show up. And he sends a Native American actress who complains about the lack of Native Americans in Hollywood movies talks about the events of Wounded Knee and says that he'll be refusing to receive the award. There are uh, movie stars and, and celebrities who want to come to Wounded Knee, but this is a much more dangerous situation, and it's they're not able to get in. So after three months, the traditional tribal council suffers a loss when one of their members, Buddy Lamont, lived on the reservation forever, was shot by federal forces. Tribal council decides to end the standoff. And they simply walk through the federal lines. They're not shot once they give up. Sadly, persecution does not stop. Dick Wilson and his forces on the Pine Ridge Reservation take revenge. And there are some 60 opponents of his tribal government that in the next three years are killed. Not only that, Russell Means and Dennis Banks, two of the AIM activists, are sued for conspiracy and assault. And AIM itself is targeted with lawsuits from the federal government and prosecuted criminally. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Vine Deloria turned to other pursuits from writing about rights he moved to writing about Native American religions as well. He was well prepared to do this because Von DeLoria had received a degree from a Lutheran college in theology. Tribal religions, he said, had been forgotten, but they had much to offer. And it was the worst damage that the assimilation process had done of taking Indian children, forcing them into boarding schools, forcing them to convert. Christianity and not learn their native religions and tribal languages. So much had been lost. Just as he had written back in the 60s in a very forceful tone and seeking to upset how people viewed the world, he didn't abandon that in his writings about religion. Tribal religions, he said, were better. They were more effective at parity with nature. They had a better recognition of the spiritual capability and psychological capabilities of animals that the Western religions didn't seem to capture. It was not a worshipping of the trees, as some people thought, but an opening of themselves, an opening of ourselves to communication from nature, to hear birds, animals. It's not magic, he said, but it's using nature to measure what's going on and getting better at that. Birds, animals, even rocks could educate the people. My background for this is, uh, he goes up standing
0: and he starts bugging this old man. And he wants to know all this information about this old man. So, this is Vestal. Though the chief had promised to tell me the full story of his life, he was somewhat reluctant to relate this vision and requested that I hear it when there was no one else in the cabin. And there are three cabins in a row in the old man's cabin, it's the center. He explained that whenever he told it, uh, told it this story, a fierce thunderstorm followed and therefore he told it very seldom. He had been sitting with his back to the north wall of the cabin, inside and the sky was cloudless. We finished the conference at seven o'clock that evening and had supper. By that time, thunderclouds had piled up in the northwest, and my interpreter pointed out certain features of the clouds, which indicated a storm about to break. Immediately after supper, a terrific thunderstorm burst upon us. Now listen to this. The cloud was small and swept out of the north directly from my cabin, where the story had been told. No rain fell on the adjacent cabins with a few yards on either side. And the wind was so strong I had to move my car to keep it from rolling off the bluff. The chief made no comment on this appalling fulfillment of his prediction. He took the storm for granted. Now, what kind of world did these people live in? You talk to a variety of academics about this, and they'll say, well, that's just coincidence. My response will be, well, why don't you go out and make one of these coincidences happen, and then we'll accept that. But the question is, how was their life different? Were they more holy? Were they more sincere? Or were they so tuned in to a natural environment that these things could happen to them? See, none of us, myself included, are in a situation where an unusual but natural thing can happen to us. and consequently we're cut off from communication. But if you had a choice for the world we live in now and the world those people lived in then, which would you honestly choose? And I myself would like to know more about the universe, more about the living things, more about where we came from, more about the history of the planet. And I think those old timers knew what
1: they were. Vine Deloria Jr. passed away in 2005. But his work, which continues now, this son Philip Deloria, changed the debate, how it was framed, and opened up new ways of seeing the problem.
0: Vestal goes up standing, Rock. Which, of course, myself, and where's the other guy from standing, Rock? Okay, I met one other guy from Standing Rock. I said, maybe we are
1: holy enough to save this whole group. You never know. Mindalori was born in Standing Rock Reservation, which exists within the states of North and South Dakota. And while he's no longer alive for the debate of the Dakota Access Pipeline, and I have little doubt of where he would come down. Because he moved the debate beyond a kind of Passive Indian, operating only within geographic lines established by others. An anachronism to real people in tribes with needs and with rights in negotiation. Maybe winning, maybe losing. The original plan for the Dakota Access Pipeline was scheduled to cross the Missouri River a bit north of the North Dakota capital city of Bismarck because there were concerns about the safety of the drinking water there. The pipeline project was moved south of Bismarck but north of the Standing Rock Tribal Reservation. But this is through what many of the tribes say are their fishing grounds and where history says it was the original reservation boundaries by the treaties of 1861 before law was manipulated to allow for Indian lands to be settled chessboard fashion by settlers and eventually to be reduced in their boundaries. And their fear is that a spill of the pipeline would spoil drinking water for the reservation. The company building the pipeline asserts that it's solid latest technology it's going to be under the Missouri River. And while there's danger of anything, like there's danger when you get into a plane of a plane crashing, they can't ever guarantee there'll never be a spill, but these types of pipelines operate all the time. Well, where I think it's important to talk about DeLoria and and some of his books on this is that the pipeline is not on tribal lands and i think that if that was a debate that was happening in the 19th century certainly or even most of the 20th century that would be the end because that's the way we kind of see things in our world you know there's this geographic line and a and tribal lands it ends there they don't have any control over what is not on their property but this current debate is anchored in the activism that started in the 1960s and in some of the writings of Deloria where it's important to look not just at, you know, the actual geographic boundaries, but something that might damage what our hunting, fishing, right to clean water. American history is intertwined with the tribes who were here when Europeans came. It's not always a positive history. It's forgotten that George Washington or Thomas Jefferson viewed tribes as nations. There's a room in the White House called the Indian Treaty Room. Why is it there? Why is it called that? Pendants and coins that celebrate the beginning of treaties signed by the Washington administration. These tribes were viewed as nations. Now, it wasn't always positive. Sometimes there are nations to be warred with. But one thing that's common is that they were always viewed that way, as nations having some amount of independence. Jefferson draws a line between those tribes that had British support, and that was a group that he wanted very much to, for Americans to war with on their way to Canada during the War of 1812, or the type of uh, tribes that had friendly relations with he or his father when his father, the explorer and macmaker. But in War of Peace, they were nations, independent actors, and not wards of the state with limited rights. That change occurs in the later 19th century, and the assimilation programs, Dawes Act. It's tempting to say that's where the story ends of Native Americans, and it's just this kind of sad history of a Indian crying next to a teepee or something like that. And that's why I like to tell this part of the story and talk about Alcatraz and Wounded Knee, and these are events that happened in color TV times. In times when we're exploring space, Native American actors who are trying to influence and change the story that we're telling. Since this is My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, I prefer to talk about this story because it's a little more real. Some of these people are still living today. It's a little more real. You can can touch it more than uh, talking about Trail of Tears or... Battle a little bighorn or, or, or Geron- Geronimo or things like that. It's real and it's not so far from the politics of today. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Now, at the premium site there, a premium podcast, got a couple of things. One is I discuss with uh, Chris Nombrino of Don't Worry About the government podcast have a really long discussion that we conducted in the Super Bowl <laughs> about football and politics a little bit using football metaphors and politics, but also about the Trump administration in its first few days. Some interesting talk there. Not only that, you heard recently my interview with John Ablon about Washington's farewell address. Was very excited to do that on the premium podcast. I go into more about Washington's farewell address and hammering on some of the points that John made because I, I think the conversation was good, but fast. And I think some of it could be developed more. Really giving you a sense of how to use Washington in the politics of today. How to use Washington in political debates properly. That's on the Premium Podcast. www.myhistorycomputerpoliticspremium.com Thanks for all those who have subscribed.